Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers, just in time for your fall brewing activities. And Christmas, so you can give it to other people for a gift. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. On today's episode, well, it's going to be the, the rundown. We're going to go into some feedback. We've got your questions. We've got the pub life to talk about the beer. We've got something to talk about in the library. We've got a couple of things in the brewery, including something cool with malt. And then we're going to head into the lounge where we're going to talk. Well, we're going to talk yeast with a guy who's had a long-ranging career. Yeah, he's uh, he's done a whole bunch of stuff in the brewing industry. It's a really fascinating and interesting interview. And uh, we get some help from our friends Jeff and Susan Rankard in there, too. There you go. And, of course, then we'll leave you with a quick tip, something other than beer, and get you on your Merry Beery Week. But first, it's time to appreciate the people who make this show possible. So please stick around. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, makers of BrewGuru, a mobile app offering homebrew recipes and money-saving deals at breweries and homebrew shops nationwide. Visit your preferred app store to download BrewGuru today. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're back. Thank you all for sticking around, and Drew's going to kick off the announcements today. Well, and of course, as always, if you weren't paying attention on last week, we had another episode of The Brew Files, episode 71, which was called Meeting in the Moonlight. Yes, I know, I come up with silly titles. <laughs> you know, I kind of like that one. Well, thanks. But uh, I sit down with Bernice Vanderberg and Michael Fairbrother, who are two good friends of ours, who both uh, help run you know, the fantastic meadery called Moonlight over there in New Hampshire, and we talk what's going on with mead, the mead scene, what's going on with the bees, because bees are our friends. That's right. And also, how to make the best damn mead you can make at home yourself. And believe me, if anyone can tell you about that, it's going to be Mike. And we also want to remind you about the Queen of Beer competition. It's a 23-year-old women's homebrew competition, and it's returning, run by our good friend Melissa McCann. Thanks to sponsorship from BSG and the Pink Boots Society, Queen of Beer will be offering the Best of Show winner a scholarship for brewing courses at UC Davis and to have their beer brewed at Drake's Brewing. I mean, 
What cool prizes. You've got plenty of time to plan your entries. The entry window opens in October. That's next month. So you still have time to get it together. Visit queenofbeer.beer for more details. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA. And hey, by the way, this month you can get a copy of Radical Brewing. That's pretty awesome. That's radical. Indeed. Brewswag.com, code word experimental. Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's a great organization called Chat with Champs that helps kids who are going through cancer treatments by connecting them with champions so that they always have a friend they can talk to. Really, really a great, great organization. Uh, their outreach program helps kids during and after cancer treatment so that they just never feel alone. Uh, throw us a couple bucks that we can throw to them because kids with cancer is like one of the worst things on the face of the earth. Amen. So... Give us a buck. We'll that's, give it to them. That's right. And now it's time for your feedback. I've got two pieces of feedback uh, this week. Uh, first piece of feedback comes from Mark Pellicle, who in episode 100, you remember we had the Maris Otter cue uh, all about, hey, you know, why is Maris Otter so popular and uh, peanuts and all this other sort of stuff. And Mark writes in and says, hey, guys, thanks for getting to my question on your last show. I wanted to clarify that I was talking about commercial beer, although I've had noticed a lot of homebrewers using it as well. Also, I didn't mean that I think the majority of commercial brews are using Maris Otter. And this is all clarification. Just that I've noticed it more frequently in micro-boutique beers, and typically ones that are taproom only, which makes perfect sense. Typically, when I get the flavor components that I mentioned in my last email, which again, were a lot of it was peanuts, uh, was my primary memory of, of his response. I will ask the bar staff, who typically ask the brew staff, if there's Maris Otter in the beer. I have not had a time when I'd asked where Maris Otter was not confirmed to be in the beer. I guess there are a few things I would like to sort out for myself, one of which is, do only I taste this Samaris Otter, or is it in the greater category of the English pale malt? You alluded to it in the episode, but I assume Maris Otter is only grown in the UK. If I'm wrong, please let me know. I think experimenting with this idea would be fun, and I hope to find out more about what I'm actually tasting. My wife, who I consider to be a better taste tester than myself, does not pick up a lot of what I associate with Maris Otter. So, yes, you're right. Maris Otter, the barley, as far as I know, is only grown in the UK, or at least... It's only grown in the UK and marketed that way. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about it only being grown there, but it may only be grown there in, like, say, commercial quantities or large quantities. Yeah, and again, I think, I think a lot of what you're you're tasting when you when you're getting those, uh, you know, roasted peanuts and that sort of thing. Again, going from memory about the the question, I'm fairly certain that's coming down to the way the malt itself is is kilned. Um, but uh, yeah, I've never gotten uh, roasted peanuts. Then again, that doesn't mean you're not being valid, but I also like the fact that you point out that your wife, uh, who you consider to be a better taster than yourself, doesn't get it. And by the way, yeah, most of our wives are going to be better tasters than we are. Well, you know, if it comes down to the way the mold is killed, then that means it may be there sometimes and not others because there's more than one maltster using Maris Otter. Oh yeah. I mean, like I really like crisp Maris Otter and I'm not as much of a fan of either Simpsons or Thomas Fawcett's. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the other thing that I was thinking is I wonder if this is geographically related. Uh because around here, I'm sure there are some people who use Maris Otter in their beers, but it's not really prevalent, you know, you don't see a lot of it. You see much more of of the craft malts that are grown here in the northwest than you do something like Maris Otter. Yeah, and then down here I know we're seeing a number of breweries that are playing around with like Mecca Grade or Admiral or Brutchute. Yeah, so yeah, it is interesting. I I do have to imagine it's going to be 
varying from region to region. But then again, I mean, I, I and I also think it's also going to vary by size of brewery, right? Yeah. As Mark pointed out, mostly in taproom only st- sizes of beers. And I'm guessing the smaller the brewery is, the more likely you are to see them playing around with something like Marisol or just because of the cost per pound. So, uh, hey, Mark, if you're listening to this one, man, uh, get in touch with us one more time and let us know where the heck you are because uh, – we want to see if we can come up with any wild, unsubstantiated theories. Yeah, he may have already told us, and I just completely forgot to transcribe it. My bad. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, so anyway, Mark, uh, if you haven't told us where you're located, please do, and then we'll come up with a uh, completely unsupported theory about why this is. Wouldn't be the first time. No, it And our second piece of feedback comes from Jesse Helm regarding Seth from Mechagrade and the interview that we did with him. And uh, Jesse says... I wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed the interview with Seth from Mechagrade. I have not yet tried any of his malts, but hope to in the near future. One thing that really caught my interest was Seth's idea of having a homebrew competition focusing on local ingredients. This really hit home for me. He even mentioned Riverbend malt from North Carolina. This really caught my attention because I live in western North Carolina and have used the Riverbend malt a number of times, and it's fantastic. There's a homebrew festival in Asheville every year called Just Brew It. I entered a Saison this past June that was brewed with 100% Riverbend malts. I used their Pilsner malt, Appalachian wheat malt, and Carolina rye malt for the grain bill. I added Blue Ridge Mountain honey at the end of the boil. Towards the end of primary fermentation, I added four quarts of muscadine and scuppernong grape puree, wow, which is indigenous to this area, along with pink peppercorns and bee pollen. Wow, this is wild, and I, I could even drink this. It was definitely a risky recipe for me since I had never used any of these specialty ingredients before, but I really wanted to keep a focus on local ingredients for this recipe. It turns out that the risk paid off. I was lucky enough to win the Burial Beer Company Award for Best Saison. This one really meant a lot to me and was sort of a validation to me personally for all the brewing I've done since last year's competition. When I heard you guys talk with Seth about narrowing your focus and how it can sometimes spark new creativity, it immediately made me think of my Saison recipe, and I couldn't agree with you guys more. I definitely plan to use this mentality for future recipes. Well, very cool, Jesse. Congratulations, man. And good thinking. You know, I, I really enjoy people who think through what they're doing with their beer recipes. Yeah, and no surprise to me that Burial Beer Company would be the ones brewing that beer because that is so up their alley. It's not even funny. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about them. Well, they have one, at least one beer. I think it's Garden of Earthly Delights. And, and forgive me if my memory is faulty here, but. Amongst the many ingredients it includes, it also includes carrot tops. You know what? Remember Seth talking about how he was going to be using carrot seeds in uh, the beer mm-hmm. that he was making? So uh, a, a week to go, too, man. Uh, a week from when we're recording, this is when it is. Two days after this podcast comes out, it will be Brewing Man. I'll be over there uh, getting some interviews with people and uh, hopefully trying some really interesting and unique beers. And uh, I, I'm willing to bet that we won't see many pastry stouts. Probably not, but don't forget, you can always go and stalk Denny by showing up in uh, 
At Mecca Grade. Um, where's Mecca Grade again? It's in Madras, Oregon, kind of uh, in the area of Bend. Uh, beautiful high desert country there. Uh, if you go to brewingman.org, you can get information. The event is completely free. There's a farm-to-table dinner, and all the entry fees from the homebrew competition will be donated to Heifer International, which is another really, really cool charity. There you go. Heifer's Malt and Burning Men, or Brewing Men, or something. <laughs> hopefully, we won't, hopefully we won't be burning malt. There you go. But you know what I think it is time for? I think it's time for a beer, don't you? Amen. All right, we're going to get out of here. We're going to head over to the pub, and when we come back, we're going to be drinking beers from Yakima. So please stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back, everybody. We have made our way over here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever it is. And it's time for a couple beers from Bailbreaker. Ooh, alliteration. Don't you love it? What are you drinking there, bud? A huge surprise here. Well, actually, it is kind of a huge surprise because I'm not normally a guy who reaches for a double IPA or even bigger, except for maybe to try in a little bit. I mentioned it in the last episode in our little recap of Hop and Brew School, but when we went to Bailbreaker that one time, I ordered a pint of Bottom Cutter just because everybody else had spread out amongst all the other IPAs, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll get this one so that we can try the whole range. It's because it was the highest alcohol, right? No. Okay. Because everybody else had every other IPA. Drunky. Uh, nah. <laughs> and the only thing I can say about this beer is, holy damnation, this was... A, Arguably one of the most drinkable double IPAs I've ever had in my life. You know, right up there with kind of Plenty of the Elder in terms of giving you that, you know, bright, bitter, crisp, and clean finish that belies its eight point some odd percent. And all I remember is like while we're sitting there having those couple of beers, like I realized I was like a third of my way through that glass before. Well, before it was a reasonable time to be through one third of a double IPA. <laughs> uh, 
And so I loved it so much that I bought a six pack of cans and checked my bag to bring back here. And I am now down to the very last can. Oh, well, man, that's the advantage of me driving up there. I brought home three cases of various Bell Breaker beers. Uh, one of them uh, is the beer I'm having today, the Hop Country Session IPA. Now, I've had Session IPAs before, and, you know, it, it's hard, at least for me, it's hard to find a good one that isn't like lightly hopped water for my palate. Uh, Founders all day, not a bad one, it's okay. But I swear to hoppy goodness that this Bale Breaker Hop Country IPA, it's 5.4%, 40 IBUs, and it is perfect. Uh, This beer has body to it, it has flavor to it, uh, in spite of the fact that the IBUs are up there for a 5.4% beer, it doesn't come across as overly hoppy. Uh, wonderful aroma, wonderful hop flavor. I wish I could tell you exactly what was in it, but I don't know. They don't they don't give me that information on on the can or on the website. So all I can tell you is, if you're in the Yakima area where you can get a hold of Bale Breaker beer, you want to get a hold of some of this. It's it, I mean, let's face it, when it comes to IPA, man, these guys, they, you can't go wrong, can you? No, and, I, and I'm totally in agreement with you. Most, most of the session IPAs I've ever had are pretty weak tea. Right. And yes, I'm making an intentional flavor reference there. Mm-hmm. Um, they are pretty weak tea, and that one, that was just perfect. A really nice drinking beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's one of what they call their rotator series. They have this, that. They have uh, one that's a little bit stronger, more pale ale strength, and uh, an IPA that comes in in the 7.2 area. And I guess that they're going to be keeping, switching these beers around. Uh, but let me tell you, folks, if you're an IPA fan, you need to try and find yourself some Bale Breaker IPA because you can't go wrong with any of them. Yes, and from the world of IPAs that we're both drinking, it's time to throw it back to something old school and whether or not, well, whether or not something old school can come back. So we've seen cases in recent times of sort of granddad beer coming back, you know, people relaunching hams and Schlitz and all these old brands that you know we now associate with our. Well, either our fathers or our grandfathers, depending on how old we are. Um, although I suppose nowadays with some beer drinkers, it's also great-grandfathers. <laughs> yeah, man. And so there was an interesting story in the Chicago Tribune uh, from last week about a old Chicago brewery, and by old I mean like 27 years old, uh, called Golden Prairie. It opened up as a craft brewery in the 90s and went out of business. And the guy who had been the, the brewer there... Uh, he he took up another brewing job, right? And he was mostly known for doing these sort of balanced beers, including what to me was the stealth craft beer of the 90s, which was an alt beer. You know, man, when I first started home brewing, uh, I, I brewed a lot of alt. As a matter of fact, reading about alt beer was what made me want to go all grain because uh, I had read that it used Munich malt and that I had to brew all grain to do that. And what was really cool back then was that not a lot of people were brewing alt beer. So I could brew them and enter them in competitions and do pretty well because there was no competition. Right. And I mean, so this guy, Ted Furman, had a brewery called Golden Prairie. 
And he, yeah, he hung up the the brewery at, at one point, and it just, uh, it, it, it didn't go anywhere. But like I said, he became an, a, a brewer at Argus Brewing Company in 2016, and they actually allowed him to resurrect the Golden Prairie brand. And this article in the Chicago Tribune by Josh Knoll, who's uh, wrote that really great book about uh, ABI selling out or you know Goose Island selling out to ABI uh, last year, or actually earlier this year, I think. Uh, he uh, he wrote up this article, and it was like, there's this one this one place where. Uh, Furman was at a bar and he said but then one night at his local bar a young brewer drunkenly said something Furman couldn't stop thinking about that Furman and his beers were irrelevant was the young brewer trying to be a jerk or was it just gruff honesty fueled by too much beer Furman didn't know and he didn't care all he could wonder was whether the young brewer was right so he thought about quitting did the world really need his beer and it keeps going and then the answer basically presented himself that next Saturday morning when he got a text message telling him that he won a gold medal at the GABF in other strong beer for his, uh, it was a Golden Prairie Doppel Alt. So, <laughs> wow. A, a sticky alt. And, you know, he, he won over 43 beers in the other strong beer category. It was the first gold medal that Golden Prairie had ever gotten. So he's making moves to really relaunch Golden Prairie in the Chicago area. And the one thing, and Denny and I had talked about this, the one thing that kept making me think about it was like, it seems almost quixotic to try and launch a brand with an alt. Yeah, you know, uh, I gotta hand it to him, but good luck, bud. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll be happy because, as I've said before on the podcast, and we said in the Brew Files episode about alt, uh, the first two of three craft beers that got me into craft beer were both basically alt beers. Yeah, so. you know, there's a uh, there's a new uh, brewery slash brew pub that's opened up near me. Pretty much the only one out here in the middle of nowhere where uh, I can go without driving for a long time. And uh, they're making an alt, and it's really really good. Yep. So bring back the alt. Yeah, please do. And uh, you know, I hope that Ted does well. I my first uh, reaction to this was, didn't he learn the first time around? But, you know, that's me. Yes, but hopefully he didn't, and it, it takes off. Yep. I, I, you know, like I said, I, you know, man, for his sake, I hope it does really, really well. And our next story comes from listener Danny Bland down in Melbourne, Australia, who sent us a really cool story that appeared down there about Sydney researchers developing a drought-tolerant barley grain, right? Or, sorry, a drought-tolerant beer grain. And as you guys know, we've talked about this in the past from an ecological point of view, making beer is, well, not exactly the most efficient use of water. And part of that comes down to the idea of growing our grain. Now, barley actually is pretty good in terms of water consumption. Remember, you know, our sponsor, Mechagrade, they're up there in the Central Valley in Oregon, which is kind of part of a high desert. Yeah. It's not exactly a lot of rain. Uh, and they grow barley there very successfully. But down in Australia, the, these researchers are playing around with the idea of trying to grow triticale to use in beer. And triticale is a hybrid of uh, wheat and rye. These days, it's most often used as the feed for animals, or it's sold in your hippy-dippy market. Down there in New South Wales, they're actually trying to play around with growing up uh, triticale because they're trying to improve the amount of yield that they get and the amount of resistance it has to certain, uh, well, certain fungal diseases like rust. And... It's going to be really kind of cool because if they can pull this off, that gives them another way to boost beer production without necessarily boosting water usage, which for, you know, I mean, I live in California. We always we're constantly getting beaten in the head with drought messages, but it's nothing like that 
for us as it is in Australia. Yeah, man, I remember when we were down there a year ago, uh, things things were very dry and there were signs everywhere uh, encouraging you to limit your water usage. So this is this is a really cool idea, and you know it ain't barley, but you can make beer out of it, and uh, it could be pretty good—a combination of wheat and rye. Yeah, and it's also supposed to be pretty good in acidic soils, which you know, when you get into more drought-stricken territories, you tend to see the soil turn more acidic. So, very very kind of cool. Right, exactly. So bring back more grains, really. And the next story, we are back to a brewery getting a cease and desist for doing something that they should have known better in the first place. Uh, Armistice Brewing uh, in California put out a huge pastry stout that they named the Mary Berry Pastry Stout. Uh, If you don't know, uh, Mary Berry is uh, one of the judges on one of my all-time favorite TV shows, uh, the uh, Great British Bake Off, uh, Great British Baking Show, depending on where you are. Uh, Mary didn't like her name being used in a beer. And and her image. Yeah, and her image. And despite the fact that it was really intended in the nicest way as an homage uh, to her, uh, I really understand her point. Number one, they didn't ask, which they should have at the very least done first. And number two, Mary is not just a person, she's a brand at this point. And she kind of has to protect her rights to that brand. And if she lets somebody use her name and image, then other people could uh, potentially use that as a precedent so they could do it too. So, mm-hmm. you know, and... Again, I understand why the brewery did it. What I don't understand is why they didn't come to their senses before they did it. Uh, maybe they've been drinking too much of their own beer or something. But uh, well, I, mean, I mean, look, I mean, a lot of these breweries, when they're doing these one-off things, they know that they can release the stuff a lot of times before anybody gets, you know, the, the legal works all jammed up to be able to do something. Because normally with a cease and desist like this, it's like. Yeah. You know, okay. Fine. Whatever. One time, get rid of whatever you have. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to make any more of this. And so that's the reason why you're seeing all these breweries around the country doing things like their hazy cans with, you know, or fruited sour cans with Nintendo characters or cartoon characters or something like that, because they figure they can get it out in the market before anybody's lawyers can respond. Um, what I really thought was interesting was there is a a different set of messaging coming from the brewery when they were being interviewed about this. Right. Versus what they were saying on their social media, because when they were interviewed about it, it was like, oh, it's totally intended as an homage, but I get it. People got to protect their image to the public. And then on Instagram, they posted a picture of the bottle with a big canceled banner across the Mary Berry uh, photo that they had put in there. And the the Instagram caption read, uh, somebody's agency has a very soggy bottom indeed. Which, if you're a Great British Breakout fan, you know that that's kind of one of Mary Berry's <laughs> things. Actually, it's more but, Paul's thing. Yeah, well, th- I mean, th- it's both of them. And, yeah. of course, now Paul's the only one on, on the, the recent seasons. Right. But still, yeah, a little bit of interesting mixed message from the brewery there on the one hand. Uh, but, yeah, at the same time, this goes into that whole IP thing that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, man, uh, it does, and... Again, I just can't understand why a brewery wouldn't think about that first. But, you know, I, no matter how good their intentions are, it, it just doesn't work. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I give them good intentions on this one. Um, 
Now, from that sort of uh, nonsense, let's go to some positive news before we get out of here. And that was the recent news that Allagash in Maine has uh, just announced that they've become both a B Corp and a benefit corporation. So what does that mean? That's a good question. Right. So a B Corp is this notion that's hanging out there. Um, There's a third-party nonprofit uh, group called uh, B Labs. And B Labs basically will take any corporation that uh, applies to be a B Corp and runs them through the rigorous examination and looking at like all their business practices, their uh, ecological practices, their community practices. And really what it is, it's a stamp of approval that says this is a corporation that is working to be a good corporate citizen, both towards their employees, towards their community, towards the environment, and towards the public. Right? And so turns out Allagash is the 14th brewery in the U.S. to become a, a B Corp. They join the, the ranks of, I believe the first one was New Belgium Brewing Company, right? So no big surprise there. Um, the Alchemist in Vermont is also a B Corp. Uh, Sufferfest, which was the gluten-free brewery that I believe was picked up by Sierra Nevada a couple months back. Uh, North Coast, Hopworks Urban, and Brewery Vivant. You know, it's just some of the bigger names. There are also a couple of much smaller breweries, like uh, little brew pubs and whatnot, that are also part of this. So at the same time that they applied to be a B Corp, they also took advantage of Maine has recently become one of another number of states that has this notion of legally of what's called a benefit corporation. And just on the very short, high-level surface understanding of what I have on that, it's basically, it ties that same notion of the stuff that they're talking about there with the B Corporation in terms of being, you know, a sound, good corporate citizen and tying that into their charter legally. So it's a state-recognized thing that they're doing. And what they basically have said is that what they're looking for is both recognition and also continued drive towards keeping their programs running towards the like a million dollars that they dedicate every year to buy local main ingredients or their grants that they make to the local community, uh, their ability to run solar power or their ability to try and recycle as much of their downstream waste or reduce their water usage footprint, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so it's really kind of cool to see that happening again as another, you know, good marker. You can actually see a lot of B Corps in the, the health and wellness and food industry, but it's also just kind of cool to see them join the ranks in the brewing world. Yeah, man, I, I think it's great. Uh, you know, I, I love to see breweries who are, are responsible and uh, think about what they're doing, and that's a great way to make sure that uh, they keep doing it. Absolutely. So on that news, I think it's time for us to finish up our beers. And, well, I think we got to go talk about something that we read. We're going to get out of here. And when we come back, we'll be talking about a great article by our friend Josh Weikert. So please stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com.
Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome to the library. We're surrounded by musty books and, oh, I guess I need to be quiet, huh? No, not really. We've done that shtick before. Okay, so uh, this comes from our friend Josh Weikert, who uh, does a lot of writing about beer. As a matter of fact, we took over his Brew Your Own column, and uh, he is writing in defense of low-alcohol beer, which, you know, from listening to us, we are both totally into, although... His reasons aren't exactly what my reasons are. Yeah, I was going to say, this one was kind of funny to read just because it was, uh, it almost felt a little bit like grouchy old man get off my lawn type of take on things. So he had a couple of points in the article. The first one, which was that, you know, uh, alcohol is money uh, and in more ways than one. So one of, there's obviously the thing of you need more ingredients and then, you know, you also need to spend more on money on, on hops and then longer time conditioning and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he says also he wants more beer during, uh, you know, while he's drinking. So, for instance, he doesn't want to sit down and have two pints of something that's like 7%. He wants to have like three or four pints with, you know, they're, they're much lower in ABV. So he can sit there and enjoy drinking beer without necessarily getting sloshed. Um, and also he says you can also brew more wort at a lower level than you can the higher ABV stuff because, again, of grain capacity and all that. And I, I think you had a, a, a different opinion about that, right? Well, I, both of them, man. It's like, you know, ABV is money. I'm fine brewing. It's a hobby. Uh, at least for me, the uh, cost of it is secondary to making what I want to drink. Uh, in terms of wanting to drink more beer, again, that doesn't apply to me, man. I, I generally have two, maybe three beers, and I'm done. Uh, if it's a high ABV beer, maybe just one. The other day, I drank a, a 9% beer, and then I switched over to the keg of carbonated water I keep in the fridge. So, you know, it's personal preference. Uh, I understand those two points in terms of what Josh wants, but uh, I don't think it applies to everybody. Yep, and then uh, other points, you know, this is where you can tell that Josh is involved in politics. Uh, says, I don't want you drunk in my house or outside of it because he doesn't want the liability. And not only the liability, just the unpleasantness. Yep. And then he says, you can get enough of that stuff in other places. So, you know, you can go everywhere else in the world and get bigger beers. Uh, then the, this one was the one that kind of made me go, huh? Was they says sweet beer sucks and that it, to him, alcohol is sweet. So, yes, there are times when alcohol can be sweet, but a lot of times, hmm. I don't know. Uh, alcohol is always sweet, but that doesn't mean that the resulting beer is going to be sweet. I mean, geez, Josh, you know this. Come on. Uh, you know, and then he finishes up saying, before anyone says, who the hell are you to tell me what to brew or drink? Relax. I'm not. But if you want to drink in my home brew pub, then wrap your head around the idea that you're going to have to drink more than a snifter of a bitter beer and that it won't make you forget the poor choices that brought you to this point in your life. Uh, 
Josh, that's fine, man. And you can do that. But again, I just don't see how that figures into that fifth point about sweet beer. That's just, that makes no sense to me. But oh, I, I don't think that plays into that. I think that's just him. Again, like I said, I like Josh and I like most of what Josh writes, but you know, this was, this did come off to me as very, uh, you know, grumpy old man shakes his fist at the clouds. Yeah. I, I you know, I can see that in a way, but, uh, having been accused of that many times myself, uh, I think that it could just as well, just him be him trying to explain why he brews what he does. And, you know, but, you know, he's like he says at the end, he's not telling you not to do it. He's not telling you what to drink and what not to drink. He's just saying how it is for him. And, you know, that's absolutely fine. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's enough, uh, you know, shaking our fists at clouds and talking about low alcohol beers. Let's go to the brewery. Let's make some beer. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be over in the brewery, and we're going to be talking about malt and yeast. No hops this time. Please stick around. Inspired by iconic Belgian beers perfect for summer, Y-Yeast is releasing the three favorite Belgians, or Drie Favorita Belga, this quarter. 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3538 Leuven Pale Ale, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are available now through the end of September. These original private culture collection strains are sought after for wit beers, Belgian pale ales, strong ales, blonde ales, Flanders, and more for good reason. The aromatics of fruit orchards and fields at harvest, quenching tartness, effervescent citrus, florals and spiciness, complexity and balance. Qualities like these are irresistible for pairing with fresh-picked fruit such as cherries, peaches, apricots, and raspberries. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. and listen to those messages from our fine sponsors. Don't forget that if you do any business with them, please let them know where you heard about them. So there is uh, a recently founded craft maltster guild. I think what, it's like maybe like a year old, something like that. Somewhere about there. And they have just handed out their first awards for malt excellence. Uh, and define kind of like what a craft malt house is and stuff like that. And before we get into all the definitions, I just want to say congratulations to my friends at Root Shoot Malting in Loveland, Colorado, who uh, took home the top honors. They ended up being awarded the best craft malt in the nation. And I have had an opportunity to uh, brew with some of their malt a few times. I have a beer on tap right now that uses some of their, uh, I think it was their Munich and Vienna. I know it was the Vienna. I can't remember if it was the Munich or a pale malt. But it is outstanding flavor. And because they're using a, a different breed of barley than I'm normally uh, able to get my hands on and malting it in a different way than, say, uh, Seth does, 
their malt has a completely different flavor, which is one of the coolest things about craft malts. You know, malt that could be ostensibly the same really takes on a personality from the people who malt it. And so one of the things that we missed was that it was Craft Maltsters Day recently, on I think it was September 13th. And part of that was the Craft Maltster Guild, which, you know, is a thing now. They announced, just like the Brewers Association now has their independent brewing seal, they announced a certified Craft Malting Guild seal, right? So it comes in a couple of different flavors. So if you're a malt house, for instance, a Craft Malt House produces somewhere between 5.5 U.S. tons to 11,000 U.S. tons each year of malt, right, in that range. And that over 50% of the grains that are malted are grown within a 500-mile radius of the craft malt house. So, like, for root shoot, for instance, you know, that means that even though they're not necessarily growing their own grain, most of that grain is still coming from around their area. And then, uh, finally, that the malt house itself must be independently owned by 76% majority of its uh, ownership. So, that's the craft malt house that you'll see a seal for. And then they just uh, give seals for both the breweries and beer and distilleries and spirit. Where basically a brewery is, uh, that's certified as any brewery that purchases 10% of their malt by weight from a member malt house. And a certified beer is any specific beer that sources more than 10% of the malt by weight from a member malt house. So you can, as a brewery, not be certified, but you could release, hey, you know, this is our special beer that we do with mecha grade malt or root shoot malt and then get the seal for that package. Or if you're using that much of the, the craft malt, you can use that for your entire brewery. And the same thing with distillers, where it's 10% for by weight for a distillery or 10% for spirit can be certified the same way. So go and start to look for that logo. We'll include a link to the Craft Malt uh, website so you can actually you know go and take a look at what the logo looks like, and you'll be able to watch out for it. Yeah, man, I think it's a really, really cool thing, and I'm really glad that Malt is finally getting the, uh, the respect it deserves. Yeah, it's kind of nice, right? Yeah, it's very, very nice. Uh, and going from malt to yeast, we uh, had a chance at uh, HBC, the homebrew conference uh, in, uh, let me see, where was that? Oh, Providence. Providence. Yeah. Before the conference, I was contacted by Brian Perkey, an old friend who works for a company called Lollamand, one of the major producers of dry yeast. And it just so happens we'll be hearing more from Brian when we head over to the lounge in a little while. But Brian said that uh, Lala Mand had been working with uh, some people who had come up with a bioengineered alias. That's right, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But it was capable of producing lactic acid. So you could make sour beers without having to worry about having lactobacillus loose in your brewery, assuming you were, and many, many people are. So he asked me to put him together with somebody who could brew some beers, and we put him together with the Rhode Island Brewing Society Homebrew Club there, and uh, they put these beers on tap for club night. Now, the basic yeast is uh, meant to produce a very sour beer intended to be blended with other beers, uh, you know, to, to kind of produce a, a full product. Uh, Brian had mentioned to us that it was pretty much too sour to drink straight so i guess we all took that as a challenge so i was gonna say i remember people grabbing those beers and drinking them straight yeah that's exactly it man i know that uh, when uh, jeff and susan rankert and i stopped by the booth to try the beers the first thing we did was try the straight one and it was very sour but it was a really 
good beer. It was a very clean sour. It was not harsh. It didn't make you kind of like stomp your foot and go nick, 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 like Jack Nicholson did in Easy Rider. Um, I mean, it, I see this as a really, really interesting new product. Yeah, I guess the thing I have a question about, though, is, okay, so I get that, hey, you know, great, we've got a Saccharomyces that is capable of producing lactic acid. How is this any safer for a brewery to run with than lactobacillus? You know, because, I mean, you can kill lactobacillus the same way that you kill yeast. So why do they consider this one to be sort of safer for the brew house? I, I don't know. That That is one of the uh, the selling points. The other one is that it's extremely controllable and repeatable and easy to use. So, you know, it's it's like a whole new world here, and we don't have all the questions. Fortunately, on their website, they have a little button here on the page for this. It's called Sour Vissier. Isn't that clever? Uh, mm -hmm. And it says, get help from technical support. So I guess anybody who wants to know more about it, go to lollamondbrewing.com and uh, check out Sour Vissier and send them the questions or send us the questions and I'll get them to Brian and see what I can find out. But it does sound kind of nifty to have another tool in the tool chest. And speaking of other tools in the tool chest, uh, I'm going to do a whole episode on this, but I just wanted to give people the quick thing. I decided the other week, and I'm going to actually rebrew it this weekend because I wasn't happy with how the first uh, run went. Um, I made a beer with the Veterans Buns hop that we got from Yakima Chief Hops. And, you know, kind of a fun hop, but I decided I was going to make a no-chill IPA with it. Um, no-chill being the technique that we've discovered from our friends down in Australia. Right. And, yeah, see how, how that worked. I did a Saison earlier this year that I sent to Denny that uh, – I think Denny gave uh, two thumbs up for. Oh, man, it was excellent. And so I decided I would make this uh, Veterans Blend beer and uh, IPA, and I called it Coming in Hot. You know, good old-fashioned military term. And just to, just to play around with, and of course I got a lot of comments from people going, wait, doesn't it have a quake strain in it? Like, going, no, I'm only testing one thing at once. Right. Um, but I'm going to actually rebrew it because uh, the beer didn't come out the way I wanted it to, so it'll get a version two. And then once I have that done, I'm going to send some up to there to Denny so that he can try it, and then we can talk about it on the show. Well, that's very interesting, because I have a Veterans Blend IPA that I'm going to be sending you. See, look at this. It's I kismet. Know, I know, man. It is. It's not. That's pretty cool. So, Okay, I guess uh, we've killed enough time here, and it's uh, time to go over to the lounge. Yes, let's go talk to Brian. Okay, stick around. When we come back, we're going to be having a conversation with our good buddy Brian Perky from Lollamond, along with Jeff and Susan Rankert, and we're going to be drinking beer and eating pretzels. So uh, it's different. It's fun. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishers of Simple Homebrewing by Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Simple Homebrewing reduces the complicated steps for making beer and returns brewing to the fundamentals. Get your copy today at BrewersPublications.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in, yeah, come on in, 
just come on in and pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. All right, beer, welcome back. Beer. It's time to get comfy. I hope you're sitting down. I'm sitting down. Yes, it's time for us to lounge because we're here in the lounge. And of course, here in the lounge, we talk to interesting people about interesting things. So just to set this up, after I skedaddled out of Yakima to get back home to my day job, uh, Denny decided to take a leisurely trip back home and on the way uh, stopped in Hood River and, well, took two of our friends from the uh, American Homebrewers Association, uh, Jeff and Susan Reichert, and sat down. Well, where did you sit down? Who did you sit down with? And what did you talk about? <laughs> yeah, you know, every year when I come back from Hop and Brew School, I drive through Hood River thinking about all the wonderful breweries there and what a gorgeous location it is and saying to myself nope dude you got four more hours to drive you can't stop and drink this year i decided it was time to do something about that Uh, i rented a gorgeous uh, hotel room in hood river overlooking the columbia river nice balcony and everything and uh, invited uh, my good buddy brian perky over to visit us and sit down and talk about his amazing career in the brewing industry. And uh, since I had Jeff and Susan with me, uh, I asked them to get involved in the conversation too. I took along a selection of Ale Song beers to stimulate conversation and a bag of pretzels and uh, asked Susan to be the cellar master and pick beers and open them for us. So uh, what we did was we all sat around a table. I turned on the recorder and we talked beer and brewing and Brian's life for an hour or so. Uh, really interesting. Uh, you know, you'll be able to hear it. Uh, it's, it's live. It's different. It's really fun. So uh, I, I hope that you'll enjoy the interview as much as uh, we enjoyed having the conversation. Well, yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot to learn from Brian and a lot to see about brewing history there. Definitely, there's a lot to learn from Brian. And uh, just as, as a little note here, we tried to keep the pretzel noise to a minimum, but, you know, you guys may end up hearing us uh, drinking and eating. There you go. So, uh, misphonia sufferers, beware. Everyone else, <laughs> strap in. There's two major uh, dry yeast manufacturers out there with a couple other auxiliary ones. Right. Uh, and it's Fermentus, right? Which does Safail, right? And then there's Us, which is like Dan Star and Lovelin, right? Right. And we're kind of like trying to rebrand just under Lovelin. Okay, so that's that's a good idea. Yeah. But you'll see this Lal, so Lal Bin, oh okay. right, Lovelin Bin, Lovelin. That's where that right. comes from. And now we're doing Lal Brew when we're talking about our beer yeasts. So from a branding perspective, that's kind of how we're trying to... My next my next beer is going to be a German Pils with the Diamond Lager that Aaron sent me. It's, you know, and that's all based off of the 3470, that's so it's all the same basic stuff. I, I, ta- I talked to a woman who's like a, a microbiology person for you guys at the conference, and I asked her if, it, if uh, the Diamond Lager was like 3470, and she said, all I can really say is it's a German ye- famous German yeast that's frequently used. Uh, so. Yeah, and, and so is it genetically identical? No. 
I don't care if it's genetically identical. I drink the beer, man. It's like I don't I don't sit there and analyze it. But with direct with drag yeast, we kind of have to reverse engineer mm-hmm. with what it is that we're trying to achieve. And like the New England strain is a perfect example, right? So okay, something that's got that big like tropical juicy punch, you know, that's a uh, you know not a super attenuator, right? Um, and you work backwards from there. It's like, okay, so what's this going to deliver the peach note? And uh, so that's where that comes from. To say that we've got like, oh, you can take 1056 or 001 or SO5 or, and like, okay, we're going to like dry that out and bring it back and it's going to be exactly what it was. Right. No. No, of course not. Yeah, it's not. Of course not. Yeah. So, you know, we get, and we get the question a lot about, okay, well, what's, what's your, what's your equivalent? You know, it's like I'm using X, and so what's your Y to X? And, and so it's like, yeah, well, let's talk about in the in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So now my biggest miss, and the one that I love is the 1968, mm-hmm. right? Like, and so not only for its character, but how it performs in the fermenter. And if you ever watch that stuff, and you know, a carboy, it looks like cottage cheese, mm-hmm. and. It's, Disgusting. It's awesome because that shit drops like a rock. Yeah. Yeah. And so our ESB yeast, like when you know my guys, and there's a bunch of contacts out there right. that are like, oh, well, what do you have for 1968? And I'm just like, well, <laughs> I can deliver on flavor and you know fermentation performance, just not on flocculation. And then you see everybody go, oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, yeah, you can work around that. Uh, you can, you can. It's just that's one of the beautiful things about that specific strain. Right. So, yeah. So how I come at my customers and how I try to direct the sales teams. Look, you never want to be anybody's sole supplier. You want to be a spice on the shelf. You want to be an option to go to, and it's based on whatever it is that you guys are doing. You know, maybe use ours, maybe use somebody else's. And when we talk about Jean, it comes out of left field where his approach is he's friends with all these guys. Like he'll take Chris and to dinner and Jenny out and invite them up to Montreal and show them the labs. I mean, basically drop your drawers and like, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, his approach is none of us can do this by ourselves, that it takes a community in order to service this community, you know, I just say, dude, that's, that's a, that's a good philosophy. That's a great man. philosophy. You yeah. know, that's pretty badass. Yeah. Well, and it, like, it benefits I, everybody. Well, true. And it's the truth, yeah. really. Yeah. You know, it's just like nobody, like we can't do what Yeast does. They can't do what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just different. It's kind of a different ball game, but you kind of, there's pros and cons of depending on the approach. So. Right. Okay. 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 So here goes the official podcast <laughs> stuff. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Denny. We are sitting here overlooking the beautiful Columbia River in Hood River, Oregon, and today we're talking to my good buddy Brian Perky, and we have 
assistance from Jeff and Susan Rankert here. We're just on our way back from Hop and Brew School, and I know you've heard enough about that. Uh, Susan, if you don't mind, since you have so much stewarding experience, I'm going to ask you to be the seller, master, and steward today. I can do that. I I knew you could. We are uh, sitting here drinking ale song beer and eating pretzels, and it's as it should be. So, Brian, thanks for taking time out to come over, man. I appreciate you guys stopping by the neighborhood. This is uh, this is where I live. So uh, yeah, you know, and this is this is the first time I've actually been in Hood River, and not just driven through just on my way through. to somewhere else. You, you know, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty obvious. <laughs> People are well aware of that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, this stretch uh, here between the Dows, right. you know, which is twenty minutes to the east, mm-hmm. and Cascade Locks, which is twenty minutes to the west. That's basically your cut through the gorge. Right. So you get to see that transition between western and eastern Oregon all in this one fell swoop here. It's a beautiful drive. And between that stretch, you've probably got a dozen breweries that you could stop and check out. Should, should you just so choose? Well, see, and that's the thing. It's like when I come through here, I've always got like, you know, three or four more hours of driving to do. So I never stop and check out these breweries. And that was, you know, the big incentive for me. It, it's like, you know, spend the night, actually have a chance to drink some beer here. And when I mentioned it to Jeff and Susan, it was like, yeah, if we have to. Twist your arm. Yeah, last <laughs> year after Homebrew Con, Susan and I spent four nights here in Hood River and did a few day trips, but every night we hit some of the breweries. Right on. And it was So, so you, act, you live in Michigan, but you actually beat me here. Yeah, and we were here years ago, too. And So you're right, I do suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never go to the places in your backyard. Well, you know, that's true. And unfortunately, if it was my backyard, it might actually be a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, it's when I'm on the road, it makes it difficult. Well, I'm glad you're here. Me too, man. So we met, like, what, like 15, 20 years ago when you were at YE's? Yeah, something like that. That would have been, uh, oh, God, 90. Uh, I started, I started yeah. brewing in 98, so it was probably like, 2000 or so, yeah, does that the, sound about right? The, the three years I spent at Y East, so um, uh, that's that's where I first met you, and, yeah. the, and the inception of the commercial release of the Denny's Favorite 50. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, I still blush when I think about that. And you're famous. I know, it is, man. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, you know, I was in, uh, in Australia last October. And that is like the biggest yeast in Australia. That's awesome. It is really awesome. I'm <laughs> having people come up to me and tell me how much they loved it. <laughs> this is Australia for guns. Uh, so okay, so let's let's get in the way back machine here. How did you get started in the whole beer and brewing world? Were you a home brewer at some point? No, it was by uh, by adject uh, failure and depression. <laughs> uh, once I realized that my career choice uh, was uh, not it. Uh, what was that career choice? Uh, marketing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I had uh, uh, landed a decent job in Portland and uh, and was doing like, ex- well, exactly what I should have been doing at the time based on the plan that I had put forth when I was 18 years old. 
you know, going into college. And who, yeah, you had a plan when you were 18. Well, you, well, if you met my father, then yeah, you had a, you're like, okay, yeah, okay. you had a plan. What are you doing? What are you, boy? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, and it, it was that thing of like this. This sucks. And I had in my cubicle, I had. Uh, uh, that's when Calvin and Hobbes was published, right, like sure. daily in the paper. Yeah, so yeah. you know, the covered with Calvin and Hobbes, you know, where it's this guy stuck in his environment, but you know, his imagination allowed him to escape, you know, the you know mom or the teacher right. or whatever it was. Yeah. So uh, and and then the other thing was I had a noose hanging from the ceiling of my cubicle. <laughs> With a sign around it saying there are worse things to put around your neck than a tie. Mm-hmm. But I had sounds my, like rather dark days, dude. I had, I had. There were some dark days. Yeah, <laughs> and there were the days just like I don't know about that, you know. Uh, but yeah, just I had to bail. Like had to bail. Like, the day came and uh, specifics aside, you know, you just say, I'm walking out this door. I'm not turning around. Right. Uh, sorry, everybody. Sorry, Pa. You know, I'm out. Uh, <clears throat> and I got a job as a cook, breakfast cook. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, but the owners were assholes. And I was just like, okay, well, this is fun. Like, I like my, like the, the process of, mm-hmm. like, making soup, omelets, whatever. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah. So in that at that time, I was living in a house in Portland with a bunch of dudes, and one of those dudes was a brewer at Bridgeport. And he's like, they're hiring down on the packaging line. You should go talk to Neil, Neil Dickey. And I owe my life to that man. Cool. Uh, so I put on my blue linen, white collar shirt, tie, shine the shoes. This is circa <laughs> 1992, right? right? And uh, you know, go walking in and it's just like, uh, Mr. Dickey, I'm your four o'clock, and this is at the end of the day, you know. And he's like, got his head down on the desk, kind of like this, <laughs> like as I poke my head in the door, <clears throat> and uh, and he looks up and he does like the kind of up and down thing. <laughs> And first word, he's like, you're not right for the job. Yeah. That's what came out of his mouth, you know. And it took me back for a minute. Like, uh, dude, you can't do that to me. Like, (laughs) you you, you at least got to give me a chance, you know. And Heavy side. He's like, all right, show up tomorrow, 8 a.m., you know, not dressed like that. Be prepared to work. Uh, We'll sit down at the end of the day. If you like the job, we'll fill out the paperwork. If not, I'll pay you five bucks an hour, buy you a beer, and send you down the road. And that was my first entry into brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, was from the packaging side, you know. But you did the walkabout, and again, my buddy, you know, was one of the brewers. I'd never gone down to check it out, right? Uh, but it's like, oh, yeah, there's Alex. So um, now backing up a little bit, growing up, my dad. And his three brothers were all moonshiners. Ah. So I grew up around a still, mm-hmm. you know, and they did it. Okay. They did it more, I think, as a reason to get away from the wives, you know, <laughs> like, like hang out as brothers, you know, mm-hmm. in the barn and like talk, shit, really. So 
uh, and my dad doesn't drink, but he loves the process. He's a cabinet maker. Like he would build his own barrels, you know, and like, and as kids, one of our jobs was to go out and pick corn or fruit or whatever cheap sugar source that they could get their hands on to either make pig feed or, oh, we're going to turn some of this into some chine, you know? So not understanding anything that was going on in the barn, just like, oh, these guys are out here, you know, yeah, right. like, making, making liquor. Yeah, right, whatever yeah. that is. One walk through the brewery, it was like, oh, yeah, like, I have no idea what's going on here, but, yeah, this is all familiar. The, right. the tanks are just way bigger. So, again, this is 92, and there were a lot of, a lot of slackers that were working at Bridgeport at that time. So you show some interest, you show some initiative, hopefully you show some little intelligence. They're like, oh, you, you want to learn how to filter? DE filter. It's like, yeah, well, it looks like R2-D2. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I want to learn that. You want to learn how to clean tank? Yeah, I want to learn that. Oh, you should have said no to that one, man. <laughs> uh, well, this is a fun one. So Gansberg, right? Yeah. Cascade. Yeah. He and Portland Brewing, well, he was the maintenance manager at Bridgeport at the time that I was there. And so we had drained a bright tank. And he was like, all right, you're going to learn how to, you're going to learn how to clean the tank. Hand me a flashlight. He's like, first thing you do, he popped the manway door open, you know, and after his depressurized, he's like, you got to inspect that tank. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> flashlight head into like, you know, full CO2 Dude. environment, you know, yeah. just like, Bam! Against the manway, like out. It was like, ah. So that's your first lesson: never stick your head into an open manway. Yeah. <laughs> asshole! Like you just could have told me that, you know. Uh, but that was the experience of Bridgeport at that time, and the Ponzi still owned it, and it was before it got sold to Gambrinus. Right. And so I got to see that whole. We talk about transitions, you know. Later, I got to see whole that whole transition go down. So. Uh, so that's where I got into all of this, fell in love, and uh, haven't looked back since. So how long were you at Bridgeport? Five years. And then what? Full sale. Can you full sale? What did you do there? Uh, brew, and then I got into um, operations. So working under Mac Lee, uh-huh. who's the operations manager at the time. Awesome dude. Um. And really, you know, learning, like starting on the packaging line, there was this old shitty 12 hid, you know, Italian filler. And then they finally brought in like this piece of crap, 64 head, like old Laverne and Shirley era yeah. soda machine, you know, before they, I was like, oh, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, before they finally stepped it up. So it was just like, all right, well, you understand that this is not just, you're not just making beer, that you can sit down with your friends at the end of the day and have a pint, which was awesome. Yeah. Like, there's this whole, like, there's an industry going on back there. And uh, so watching that kind of all evolve, it's like, okay, well, I want to understand the business of this better than just, from the production standpoint. So operations seemed like that merger between sales, mm-hmm. which was driving the brew board, like what you needed to make when, right. you know, at a full sale, it's like, Fuck, are you serious? Another batch of Amber. <laughs> of course. I hate Amber. Yeah. I hate Munich malt because of that experience. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. It's yeah. amazing. 
so that's why I got into operations, mm-hmm. and then the employee buyout went down, and then uh, I asked for a raise, and they're like, "Oh, you can't have a raise. We just like bought the brewery, and we need to sell more beer." And I was like, "Okay, is that what you need to do? Sell more beer? Like, what? Where do I go to do that? You know, yeah. what? What does it take?" And again, it was an opportunity to see that side of the business. So, uh, uh, off-premise sales, uh, grocery stores, uh, convenience stores, the bars, uh, under Columbia Distributing in Portland. So I went out there and then, uh, that lasted about two years. And I was like, mm, <clears throat> this ain't, this yeah, ain't it, right. this ain't it. So, it's so, so, I, so I got back into production. Right. And that's when I moved to California. So when you were brewing, did you learn like much of the science behind it, or did they just say, this is the process, do this, do this, do Both. this? Both. Really? You know, like you can, you can be the monkey. You know, you can be the operator. Right. You know, but understand why you're doing what it is that you're doing. And I think that's, like that, that's intrinsically part of being in this industry. Like you've got a, just this natural, like curiosity. You know, there, there are dudes out there and the machines and thank God, like Phil is in the cellar and he's been in the cellar for 20 years and he, that's all he wants to do. And he's like amazing at it. Don't f- with Phil, right? Let him do his thing. Uh, and then you got guys that are like, I'm an artist. You know, if I can't create the recipe, you, I'm out. Yeah. You know, so most of the guys are like trying to like learn more, like like, do more, you know, but thank God there's the fill. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You got to have those. Yeah. But no, by by and large, like you've got to, you've got to, you've got to take the impetus of creating your own curriculum. Right. Based on what it is that you want to do. Right. You know, it's like in 92, I don't think. Like, I probably could have taken, there was a Siebel course back then, you know, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have given me what... There's nothing like just going and doing it with somebody who yeah. knows what they're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like I tell, like, I I am I am great at, like, effing things up. <laughs> fantastic at it. And boy, and you, you learn, learn from that. That's right. Dude, I will do it once. Yeah. Yeah. I guarantee you it won't happen a second time. Yeah. You know? Uh... So, but no, uh, through MBAA yeah. primarily, yeah. you know, the Northwest chapter is fantastic. And then anybody that like I work, like I got to work under Carl. Mm-hmm. Okay. I work under Phil Sexton out of, uh, out of Australia. You know, I got to work under Lundeen and Neil at the, at the onset, uh, you know, and you learn, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, are you sure about that? You know, kind of. Can I question you on that? Can I find like the second opinion? And so you go sort of digging, you know. So that's where you start learning, sure, the science. But no, to go to like a course or a program or no, no, no. So, so you went to California. Were you still in brewing? Yeah. Uh, so I took the head brewer job for Gordon Biersch down in uh, San. Wow, Bay. that. <laughs> That is uh, fairly intense, I would imagine. It, it wasn't. It wasn't in the production plant. It was at one of okay. the pubs. Okay. So this was in. Uh, so it would have been their 
second pub that they bought in the chain after Dan started the Palo Alto uh-huh. pub. Okay. Uh, and it was an existing brew pub in the big, apparently it was an old French brewery. I never saw a recipe, I never saw a sign, I never saw any other reference other than somebody built a brewery in a basement with no drain. Oh, jeez. does that? <laughs> what did you do with your wastewater? Uh, Carry it out in buckets? They, they had dry backs. And, oh, yeah, and basically, like, one drain in the brewery, you know, and the cellar was over there. Right. So, yeah, so you had to dry, like, don't make a mess. And <laughs> So you got a lot of experience making loggers? Uh, loggers and installing sump systems. <laughs> they had, like, a four-stage sump system to, like, get that thing dialed in. And, uh, and then my son was born, and I got tired of working 60-hour weeks. So sure. the last two years that I was in California, I did go over and work for... Dan at the production plant. The first year I ran uh, his packaging department, mm-hmm. and then the second year I took a graveyard brewing shift because you could work 32 hours. Your shift differential was that right. extra eight. You don't, and I pretty much everywhere I worked, it was graveyard, right? Wow. You play what music you want. You don't have to deal with any of the front office BS, right? Right. You see your running temperature don't like swing if somebody's like flushing a toilet somewhere. You're just like, God damn it! I said don't use the water. Things <laughs> <laughs> things you never even think about, yeah. you know. But uh, but I hated California like from day one. Like I, it's like the job was great and I loved working for Dan and I appreciated the focus on loggers. Mm-hmm. Right, that was part of the like I want to learn loggers. Right. And, this guy has been around the block a little bit, so right. he could teach me a thing or two. Uh, but California sucked. San Jose sucked. Like, I didn't, it wasn't my thing. I came from here, Hood River, right. to San Ho. Yeah. You know, just like, oh, my God, what a dude. Really? What, what a change. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're a Hood River native? No, from Salem, actually. Oh, really? Grew up in central BC and just then down the road from me. Salem. Uh, the Kerr Farm, which is big hop grower. Yeah. Uh, capital Farms. Uh, they used to grow for Budweiser before mm-hmm. you know, things went awry. Yeah, he, Andy, he's like, yeah, you're the reason you're in the beer business is because of the proximity to our hops. Right. I so it's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so when you couldn't handle California anymore, what happened? Well, I start. I was on the hunt for a while, and that's when the Y East opportunity. So, and my coworkers from Full Sail mm-hmm. had kind of migrated up the hill, you know, to work with Dave. Mm-hmm. So that's where, well, Jess. Pidetta. Yeah, right. So mm-hmm. he's Imperial now. And right. Across the creek. Over so here, you come from Full Sail also? Yeah, yeah. We all. Oh, I didn't yeah, realize. Jason that. up at Solera, Mike Bowler, who was out at Freebridge, and et cetera, and uh, the Dows, Doug right. over at Everybody's. Yeah. Greg Doss, now mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, no, this is Greg at full sale these days. He's the director of brewing office. That's down what there. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I knew he was at one point. I just didn't know if he yep. was still there. So, uh, yeah, so that was kind of like the breeding ground for all of us, you know, out here in in the gorge. That was that was quite some some group, man. That produced a lot of really great people out of there. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, 
It's a good spot. So did you do sales at uh, Y East also? So I ran front office. Uh, so I would, they basically brought me in to be the point between the ladies on the desk and the guys in the lab. So it's basically, can you like be the buffer, like handle, <laughs> like, you know, what, yeah. before, you know, the call gets sent back, you know, and then also like teach this crew, like how to talk to brewers, like how to deal with brewers, you know, brewers don't want to be sold. You know, it's like, look, I, 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 my time is short. You know, most of us can't like organize or plan our way out of a wet paper bag. You know, so no, I need that stuff like next week. You know, like I need a brew. Uh, you gotta understand that, respect that, and cater to that. You know, so uh, and then that's where all the where I ran into you. Right. You know, and part of the PC program, the seasonal program, is digging into the vault and looking at this stuff and. Uh, you know, out in the, the the trade shows and, you know, homebrewing was still pretty strong at that point. You know, it's taken a bit of a... Yeah, the last, last few years, for sure, yeah, it's, it's slowed it's, down. It's a bit of a hit, uh, but it's been fun looking at the reasons, some of the backstories to why. But, uh, but yeah, I spent uh, spent three years with Y East before I got headhunted from Muntins. Yeah, I remember you going to Muntins, too. Yeah. Uh, and then ended up couple years with those guys before uh, um, for the writing uh, came clear on the wall and uh, that just wasn't the right place for you uh, uh, no no apparently not uh, and that you know working for a foreign national is a different outfit than the guy down the farmer down the road you mm-hmm. know the brewer down the road mm-hmm. um, uh, and that was my first time you know working for uh, a foreign outfit right. so uh, I did not understand the <laughs> needs from their perspective uh, and they certainly weren't going to hear it from what I perceived their needs to be <laughs> it's very different and they certainly going to hear it about from some Yahoo like me right yeah. so uh, fair enough you know um, you can't lead an English horse to an American market and expect them to drink. So. Very well put. No. But, Since, uh, could I help you to grab another juror? Uh, but I'm still friends with those guys. Oh, that's uh, good. My former boss is off doing another uh, malt uh, and ingredients project, so helping him out. And then the dude that took over for my boss... Uh, who operates out of Chicago, and I love just seeing him in every like conference. You know, Providence was the last one out of home right. out of home group. Right. So it's like, dude, <laughs> did you ever get to go over to England to the home office? Oh yeah, yeah, a couple times. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, you know, but uh, um, but I knew that I probably was in trouble when I uh, came in one morning. And uh, just talked about how much fun I had basically in pub that happened to be in that little English town, and I got a bunch of like raised eyebrows. Like, and I loved it. Like, those guys are great. Like, yeah, they're like, no tourist ever comes in here. You know, who the hell are you? And that's, I'm sure in the office, they go, we don't go there. No, none of them did. None of them did. They knew exactly where it was, and yeah, none of them even walked in. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? This place is awesome. <laughs> so, it was that thing for two years. 
You know, like, right. where are you coming from? Like, right. what? I don't get you. So, uh, um, so where'd you land after that? Uh, that I started working on cider. I remember when you were doing yeah. cider, man. So, rinse? yeah. Okay. Um, cider. Tried to start a cider company with a couple of my friends. Uh, just you know, chose, chose the wrong partner, so that enterprise didn't go anywhere. I still retain the rights to the brand, etc. Et um, and do some project stuff, but uh, but where cider started was at White East. You mean you making cider? Yeah, well, it's basically, it's like we got 300 strains in the bank. So, uh, you know, you can, and this is part of where the, the PC thing came from. Right, right. It's like, you know, let, we got to come up with something, so play around. It's like, well, I, I know what a lot of this is going to do in, in Word, but look at all this fruit that's hanging around here. Right. You know, rotting on the trees. So let's squeeze some juice and play around. And 90% of that stuff went right down the drain because I had... <laughs> Zero clue, right? You know, as to uh, well, primarily nutrition requirements, you know, for cider, uh, but also like most Belgian phenolic strains, just don't make good cider. <laughs> Here's something that I discovered completely by accident that might interest you. Uh, we have probably like 15 or so apple trees and a cider press, so we press a lot of apple juice every mm-hmm. year. And uh, what we don't freeze for apple juice, I turn into cider, and I tried. All different kind of cideries. You know, the, it started with EC118 and eleven eighteen, of course, and yep. went through uh, all the Y-E cideries. Uh, started using the sweet mead yeast for a while, and a cup. That's really good. I'll just point out that we had just opened a bottle of the Ale Song a Cucumber Tom and Tonic, aged in old Tom gin barrels. So it doesn't suck. That does not really suck. Good, yeah. yeah, it's the summer in a glass. It is really. So anyway, so a couple years ago, we had just gotten done pressing juice. We'd frozen as much as our freezer would hold and still had like five gallons of juice left. And I figured, okay, we'll we'll just ferment this. And the only yeast I had around was a slurry of 1450. (laughs) Of course. I dumped it in, and I'll be damned if that didn't make the best cider I have ever made. I have no doubt. You know, and I, to this day, I use it. It ferments almost completely dry, but it leaves a lot of apple flavor in the juice so that it's not sweet, but it tastes real apple-y. Yep. So should you be screwing around with cider again sometime, give it I'll, a try. Uh, I, I will give it a whirl. I, I, in that exercise of making ciders out of white yeast and then concurrently doing the stuff for uh, Hood Valley Hard Cider, mm-hmm. our company, um, I settled on uh, the 3711. Yep. The French Saison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so our equivalent is the Belle Saison. So, and it's not that it really matters with uh, fructose, it being a diastatic strain, but it goes, you know, bone dry. Right. You know, don't, yeah, yeah. don't drop your hydrometer, you know, because you'll crack <laughs> that sucker. Uh, yeah, ask me how I know that one. Um, and that's that has been my go-to ever since, you know, for, like, the test batches that I do for CiderCon, uh, and then the small stuff, uh, working with the organic dude mm-hmm. up, the, up the hill, who, uh, you know, it, 
And so cider is fun as an exercise, but really what I enjoy, the other aspect of it is that it, it, for a struggling farmer, it's a way to stabilize their crop and turn that into margin that they can't, they couldn't touch as, you know, a straight fruit item. Right. You know, and so trying to get some the orchardists to like, you know, it's like, no, you're not, you're not just making booze. Like, you're not just in this, like, in the game, you know, of a tasting room and this and that and the other. It's like, look at what it can do for your farm in terms of uh, uh, basically crop efficiency. Yeah, right. Well, and, and actually turning a profit. Well, yeah. I mean, True Top will pay you like 25 bucks a ton, you know, and you can't pay to have a pit for that. Right. So it's just like, okay, just let it rot, you know. <clears throat> Turn it into a must. <laughs> you know, now, yeah, now we're talking. So, so how, how so, long did you decide it then? That was like a year or so before like my uh, financing ran out. Yeah. And I was like, I, I know I need a job. So I went to work for um, the dude that sold Crispin mm-hmm. to Miller. Oh, yeah. And started uh, LDB Beverage mm-hmm. uh, over here in Stevenson. Bought the old, like, uh, Sierra tanks and Widmer tanks cool. and started doing um, ciders and sodas and some teas, you know, both non-alcoholic uh, and alcoholic um, but, uh, our, per- but that guy is the consummate, uh, entrepreneur. And I can only deal with that for about a year because the same energy that he was bringing to the table, you know, he expected us to deliver as well. But you didn't have a stake like he did. Nope. Not even close. Yeah. So, and fair enough, yeah. you know, sure. but and so it's like I, I gotta get out of this like production like you know manic thing to get a know, little bit back to the other side. So that's when I went over and worked for Thunder Island, right? For Dave and Caroline. So like what little sun barrel system right by the river? Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can dig this. I will give you two years, you know. And so uh, came over here and worked for them and. Uh, you know, but they're small outfit that, uh, yeah, it's a barrel system down by the river, right. you know, <laughs> and everything that entails. So I'm like, okay, well I got two teenage kids now and, uh, two ex-wives now. And I was like, I need a little bit, I need a little something more than yeah. this. Um, uh, the job at Lollaman had been posted for, it posted about six months prior to the end of my two year contract, you know, verbal contract, right. like that would be awesome. You know, what they're, what they're trying to do, what they're looking at. Um, I'm going to miss out on this. It was still there like four months later. And so I started going through the application process and, uh, and it all basically, it worked out. I had bail out of Thunder Island about a month early. Oh, that's and, that's not then, too bad though. That, that, that I wanted to, that yeah. I had like committed to, but uh, but left them in good hands. So um, yeah, so now I've been with Lawman for the last two and a half years or so. And so, what's your title there? Uh, uh, regional sales manager, North America. 
So that's a hell of a region. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I manage the commercial uh, brewing markets and home brew and home wine markets mm-hmm. for U.S. Canada. And then I help with Mexico and South America as well. <laughs> That's, that is a big territory. It is. I just got back from Brazil uh, a few weeks ago and did a, did a lecture down there. Where were you the, in Brazil? Uh, uh, east of uh, Curitiba, or sorry, west of Curitiba uh, in a little town called uh, Guayaparva, okay. which is uh, the home of Agraria. So Agraria is uh, is a co- is a co-op uh, of five villages, mm-hmm. and they're five little German villages. Right. You know, some of the refugees that came out of Germany, you know, they weren't all the you know Nazis escaping, etc. Most of them were refugees that were stuck behind the the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, as in the Russians, you know, came back right. e or west. They they weren't kind, you know, to especially to you know anybody of uh, German heritage. So right. everybody bailed. So five boats. The Brazilians gave this charity like here's all this land. Uh, come, you know, escape persecution. Blah blah blah. What a concept, huh? Yeah, really, yeah. man. Uh, so five. <laughs> no bo- comment. <laughs> yeah. So five boats came over. Uh, each boat basically set up their own village. As a group, they started a farming co-op known as Agraria, mm-hmm. and then now the largest producer of malting barley in South America. Wow. Hmm. So I knew that I heard the name, and that must be where I know yeah. it from. Yeah. And, dude, like, first time I got invited to go down, which is a couple years ago, I'm thinking, Brazil, right, rum, G-strings on the beach, you know, <laughs> yeah, the whole nine yards. Like, now, dude, you're going inland, halfway to Paraguay. And blonde hair, blue eyes, fancy Deutsch, the architecture, the food, the music, and it was, it, it was, it is awesome. It just was not what I was expecting, you know. So, so, so this year uh, when I went down uh, to do uh, my talk, uh, I tacked a few extra days on to go out to Rio and spend right there on Ipanema Beach, and yeah, they're. Uh, <clears throat> They're, uh, the beers are awesome down there, you know, and I think their craft scene is about where we were, you know, 20 years or so ago. But the quality is, I think, is way. So when you go down there, are you talking about technical yeast stuff or are you telling people how to get it sold or what? Uh, no, it, for like this type of conference, it, because it was directed to uh, brewers, uh, it's all about uh, the application of the widget. So, yeah, so we sell yeast, but really the value that we deliver, right, and why we're a little more expensive than Fermentus mm-hmm. is that we will go and, you know, teach you how to do X or how, you know, it's... it's so so you, you don't just sell them the yeast, yeah. you tell them how to use it yeah, yeah. and what to expect. Yeah, but so, um, you know, our... Our marketing tagline is "We brew with you," you know? cool. and all of our sales guys come out of the industry. Because, you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, like brewers don't like talking to salespeople. Right? Don't walk into that room with a tie on. Right? Sure. Um, so, and that's half the fun of the job. Well, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, and and a lot of it becomes troubleshooting. 
you know. So hey, we've got uh, we've got a problem that we're trying to address. You know, we've got a problem that we're trying to solve, mm-hmm. and uh, which is what makes our foray into GMO yeast kind of exciting. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because okay. at, at HomebrewCon you had that yeast. Yeah. That it's the first time I had brewed with it, and it's the first time that I had actually put some in somebody's mouth, you know, to say what What do you think? Not only about the beer, but what do you think about the concept? You know, about bringing uh, a GMO solution mm-hmm. to a specific problem. Right. You know, it's like we can make banana yeast. You know, we can mm-hmm. make berry yeast. And part of my og- argument internal is like, why do you want to do that? Like, you've got flavors out there that, you know, exist and have been traditionally a part of what we do it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but solve a problem, like, especially when it comes to uh, production processing, you know, think about the flocculation, temperature control, uh, attenuation, uh, acid production, which is what the sour VCA is all about. Right. And that's the first one that we've been starting to kind of dick around with. And, uh, uh, I used a straight uh, a DME and uh, sucrose wort uh, to get to, uh, God, it was low. It was like uh, 1045, 1047, uh, so low alcohol. Right. And then I used that to create a base, a real acidic base. Uh, and one of the things that we found is the acidity levels depend on the composition of the word mm. by grain type. So wheat, like a wheat uh, uh, mash will result in a higher level of lactic acid in the ass end of the fermentation than something that's like 100% barley malt. Wow. It, it's a brave new world. Yeah. Who, who, who knew? Yeah, right. I mean, have have your scientists figured out what's going on with that? No, we just figured it. We just like we just, <laughs> just observed it. Yeah. Well, we had uh, Widmer is monkeying around with it. Really? So they and they are brewing up a batch that uh, Brittany is uh, our Pacific North or West Coast rep. She's presenting on this coming weekend at the NBA Northwest mm-hmm. meeting out in Bend. But I'm serving that beer down at GABF this year cool. where I'm doing something with the, the craftbeer.com people in their sit and sip area. So they'll serve the sour VCA for the four sessions and then I'll go up on Saturday afternoon and we're going to talk about GMO. You know, when you were first talking about that, you said, you know, you're, these beers were meant for blending because the straight beer was just too sour to drink. The three of us tried it there at the conference, and you know, just I'm okay. just had sure. I just you know had a little bit, so I'm not sure how it would work if I drank a whole glass. But I did not find it well, too you, sour to drink. And you it remember my, my response? You're drunk. <laughs> no, actually, that was the first. No, I was going to say it was early. Day. It was early in the night. Well, that, it, was. It, it was early in the night, and I had not had a beer all day before that. So, so you can't put that one on me. <laughs> you haven't had like this. Has that ever happened? You haven't had a beer all day, all the time. Really? Yeah. I was at Hop and Brew School all day long with tubs and tubs of beer around. Everybody else drinking. Uh, I would not drink until I went to dinner, like at five o'clock in the evening. Wow. Or something. You know? What's that like? <laughs> well, 
it, it's a side effect of getting uh, old and having a bad heart. That's, that's, that's called wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just saving it up for uh, the sports center. Yeah, that's right, man. Oh, the sports center. Uh, no, so. but uh, but that's our BCA. So I, I thought it was out of balance, you know, and yeah, uh, was it drinkable? Probably. But what yeah. I try to achieve in all the beers that I make is uh, is balance. Yeah, I, I, and I didn't have, I mean, it was definitely drinkable. I didn't have enough to know if it was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, you know? fair, fair enough. And yeah. that's that's the the differentiation there. So, but, but I did. I, I can did. see that being a great base for blending. Though. Yeah, but I blended it out in three different beers so that Nori Goza. Yeah, that was interesting. Too much salt. I effed that one up. Uh, I'll do the next batch with uh, kombu, right? So, uh, and then just eliminate the salt altogether, right? And see where that gets yeah. me. And then uh, the raspberry. I didn't have that. So one. I had raspberry wheat that I did and blended this yeah. into you know framboise ish. I could I could see that for sure. Yeah, that worked really good. And then the IPA. So. Yeah, and that one I missed also. What what, what did you think about it, the sour IPA? Uh, well, I liked it because it I blended it to balance, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like it didn't outshine the hops, you know, and it was uh, it was in key with the residual. Right. So, do you remember uh, what kind of ratio you used? Uh, based on yeah, so it was a little over twenty percent of acid base to the goza and to the raspberry right and then about 15% with the IPA okay because of the bees sure right right so, so what kind of reactions are you getting to a gmo yeast uh, you know home home brewers i think are by nature curious critters right you know they want to try stuff out they're looking to learn they will push the boundaries a lot further than most commercial guys you know and part of that's based on it's like well that I got, I got, I got to sell that beer. Right. You know, you guys can pawn it off on, you know, your neighbors, your friends. <laughs> Five yeah. gallons, who cares? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. So like we, if we free can, beer, somebody will drink. We it. can get rid of that in relatively short order. Right. You know. So, uh, and I got no push. I got. See, when this started, when this whole, I'm back up for sure. just a minute. Uh, we, we're not doing this within Lawland. Right, the company that's doing this is an outfit called Moscoma, and their genetics lab that's based out in New Hampshire. And these are the guys that were doing like all of our genetics testing, all of our you know fingerprinting, like the whole nine yards. And uh, then we figured out, it's like, dude, the only thing these guys are doing is our work. So we bought them. Uh, and a year later, get a call, and it's like, you know, we're we're all homebrewers back here in the lab, and we made some yeast. Like, you did what? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. It's kind of double take. Yeah, you know? it's like, uh, what are you working And And they are and continue to, like, the first, they came down to Providence. Mm-hmm. They're right up the road. And they wet the pants. Like, they loved it. Like, Like the amount of uh, imagination, creativity, enthusiasm, that willingness to like basically have an open mind. Yes. Like this is the playground that we want to monkey around with. 
So next year, you can expect a little bit better of a Lollaman. Not better. Uh, bigger. <laughs> I'm not that good. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let me check that. Uh, presence, both uh, on the stand uh, with some of the stuff that we're doing in-house. Right. Uh, and uh, I am working on forming an internal uh, homebrew club mm-hmm. uh, within Lawman. We have. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Well, the, I because of our, my position within the company and what craft delivers to us as a company, because we do baking, animal nutrition, plant nutrition, health. Uh, uh, specialty cultures, cheese, uh, cosmetics, uh, distilling, biofuels, wow. you know, but everybody is like, oh, you work for the beer guys. <laughs> and it's like, oh, we, we, you know, we like beer, we make beer. And so they're like, I've met homebrewers from all these different BUs that are like scattered out there. And it's like, why aren't we, why aren't we more internally cohesive within our different divisions when it comes to this sort of thing? Kind of like an industry homebrew. Well, think about it. It's like, what is brewing? Other, it's art, it's science, history, and community all by the glass, right? And so community, it's like, well, we have this internal community. I had no idea these yahoos, you know, in the lab up there were making this stuff, you know, but the people are, the all the players are there. So uh, so maybe next year we'll have we'll we'll have a booth at club night, you know. Wow, I think it'd make a great presentation. Yeah, I do too, man. Yeah, I mean you should definitely. Well, I told him I either want like what's the crazy ball that Tesla did or the big like bzz, you know. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, like, yeah the, Jacob's yeah, ladder. Yeah, yeah, like the mad scientist, the Frankenstein. Like that's what I want. Like our Holloman thing to be good. It's like science. <laughs> 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 yeah, market, marketing is like, we don't have that in the budget. Like, you need to shut up. <laughs> yeah. oh, Jacob's ladder snag. <laughs> Drew can do a great imitation. I was going to say, I pull one together. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, man, that's that's really exciting because that's like something totally different in the world of yeast. Uh, yeah, and but, you know, it's... Where I get excited about GMO in specific is that as a as a problem solver, you know that there are production issues which uh, some outfits have, and where this could be an option for the solution of that. Right. You know, like I said earlier, it's like dude, I don't want to be anybody's like sole answer. You know, but I can be a spice on your cabinet. Mm-hmm. You know, I can help you solve a problem. You know, should you come across it. You know, and this is one of the this is one of the potential solutions. So a brave new world of yeast. Yeah, it's fun. Cool. It's fun. Cool. I think it's about time to go to a brewery, don't you guys? We got a few out Hansen. here. I, I hear that that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, then we're going to get out of here. I want to thank Brian for being here today. I want to thank Jeff and Susan for sitting in and getting involved in the conversation. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Oh, a pleasure, man. I wish you'd do this again sometime. Anytime. Actually, you know what? Anytime you stop by. Uh, okay, well, that's an incentive. I think, <laughs> I think probably at the, the conference in Nashville next year, we should get together and talk about what's happened with this GMO East in the meantime. Okay, you know, yeah. And, we, and the, the Hunger Club. And... If you really want to get homebrewers on board, free samples. Yeah. <laughs> so we typically don't give out, we used to, 
but we typically don't give out yeast samples at conferences. And it's basically because we didn't really understand or know, nor do I think this, the random dude that's just like trying to like put something in his bag, you know, will come by and throw that sachet mm-hmm. in there. It's like, okay, now what did you do with it? Right. Did you throw it in the trunk of your car? Did it cook in there, you know, while you drove home to wherever? You know, and now you're pissed off at me because right, that's they got all friends yeah, and it sucks. Like, yeah, oh, this stuff doesn't work, you know, and da da da. Now, the exception to that, didn't really do it this year, but the year prior, and this is something that we're gonna do again in Nashville, is that we will have it's basically the scavenger hunt. And we'll get uh, uh Brewcraft, Country Malt probably on board. Cool. They're the ones that did it last year where okay, you go get specialty malt there and now you go over to the Yakima Chief thing and you get their hops there and now you come over to the yeast place and you get your sachet there so you walk home with that bag which is basically a brew kit in the bag right, right. right. Yeah. so then you remember it it's for a reason it's specific but yeah the free yeast sample just kind of off the top that being said if you are a homebrew club and you're doing a contest an event uh, any educational session, we will provide you with the yeast to, to do. Okay, listeners, remember that uh, Lollamand is happy to provide yeast for your homebrew <laughs> contests. Uh, just write us and we'll get you in touch. Or do you want to give your email address? It, yeah, it's uh, the person I hired to manage all this is Aaron Glass. Oh, well, <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. Pretty much, yeah. So, And that's eglass at lollamand.com. All right. She's your, she's your huckleberry. Shoot, shoot Aaron an email. She's a sweetheart, and she will get some yeast out to you. She just recently sent me a big shipment that I've been sharing with all my friends. Good. So, yeah, man, it's great. Okay, thanks again. We'll see you all later. We're going to go have a beer. So that was my buddy Brian. Uh, what, a, what a career. Uh, when he got into brewing, he knew absolutely nothing about it and has worked his way up to some of the coolest jobs in the industry after that. He's brewed at Bridgeport. He's brewed at Widmer. He's brewed at Full Sail. Uh, he's worked for Y-East. He's with Lollaman now. He's made cider. Uh, just pretty much everything he can do, starting from not knowing anything. Well, that's always the best way to go, and I still want to pour one out for Bridgeport. I miss that IPA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, man. Uh, Blue Heron was probably one of the first craft beers I ever got into. Uh, it, it, it was so addictive, we used to call it Blue Heroin. I mean, I just, I liked sitting on the, the porch after going to uh, Powell's and sitting there on that little railroad siding with a pizza and a pitcher of cask IPA. Uh, <laughs> man, yeah, really. So so anyway, it was a great afternoon, and uh, I hope all you guys enjoyed that as much as uh, I did. And if you have any questions for Brian based on what you just heard, please shoot us an email, send us a a voicemail, uh, whatever you want to do. But uh, I'd be happy to get any questions off to Brian. All right, and I think it's time for us to start wrapping up our business. I think it's time for questions. I definitely think it's time to start wrapping up the business and get on with things. So please stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. We're back for the final segment of the show, and like we always do, we're going to start it off with some Q&A. And the first one comes from Kalen Moat in Toronto. He says, I have a quike, definitely not quick, question inspired by the recent Brew Files episode. Have either of you experienced or heard from those who've experienced what I can only describe as fusels being produced with a hot 95-degree ferment with the Omega Hornendahl strain? I didn't make a starter, pitched into 86 degrees of 1056 wort with added nutrients, mostly two-row with a touch of Vienna and a kiss of C40, only magnum bittering to let the yeast shine, used my temp controller and belt to get it up to 95 for the bulk of fermentation, and it got me down to 1.005 in about five days. It tastes and smells like Grand Marnier on day seven, which I have seen reported by others, and is not the clean citrusy profile I was expecting. No other off flavors or sourness, but certainly not anywhere near what I would expect is appropriate for an IPA yeast, which is all the rage with this strain online, and certainly not as advertised by most of the commercial descriptions. Fully open to this being on me for underpitching and fermenting super hot, but isn't that kind of the point? Thoughts or prayers? Okay, so then Kalen followed up after talking to Daniel Cady at McKellar San Diego. All three beers that we produced exhibited the orange liqueur aroma during fermentation and into post-fermentation aging. However, with the IPAs produced, we cooled the tanks from 85 degrees Fahrenheit down to 70 so that we could drop any yeast and execute our dry hop regimen. Once dry hopping was complete, the intensity of the orange character married with the burst of tropical fruit and pine, and this seemed to temper the heat. Even through into packaging and weeks later, the intensity never seemed to return. We even brewed a huge strong ale upwards of 11% that cold conditioned at 34 degrees Fahrenheit and were surprised not to see any of the residual fusel alcohol we expected. If you have the capacity, I would look into doing a nice cold conditioning period if you choose not to dry hop and let it settle out its rough ages. Okay, Kalen, I'm sure Drew has some comments, but I have a couple before we start. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, he likes that. Number one, I am not by any means an expert on quike yeast, but of the probably three to five beers I've had made with them, None of them have been anywhere approaching what I would call clean, despite the uh, claims of the people who made them. Uh, I'm questioning if 
quite can really do Clayton, but like I said, I haven't tried them all, so who knows? So, and it looks like probably then the uh, the technique is to try and cover up any of those esters you get with dry hopping. Uh, I assume that can be extremely valid. I mean, you know, McKellar does it. I'm I'm willing to give it some consideration. So, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I'm not a huge fan of the Hornendall strain, so I'm just going to put that out there really right now. And I don't tend to get fusels from it. I tend to get uh, phenols. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed that almost consistently with almost every Hornendall beer I've had, with some few exceptions. Like my friend Kip down at LA Ale Works, he's got a couple of Hornendall beers that are fairly clean. Um, yeah, I think where most people are playing with these things as as speed racers, fast fermentators, all that sort of good stuff are with things that have a lot of secondary flavors to them, so a lot of dry hop or other flavors, um, particularly seeing a lot of hazy IPAs. I just did, people will hear at some point in the near future a, a recollection of a collaboration day between the Maltus Falcons and Trademark Brewing Company, and we did a hazy IPA with Opashog uh, from White Labs, and I just had that last weekend, and... I mean, it was, you certainly couldn't tell much about yeast character because it had all this wonderful South African hop character to it. And it it tasted, though, very, very clean. I didn't get any fusils. I didn't get any phenols to it. Whatever I got from it was probably fruity tones that blended in with the hops. Now, having said that, I've also had some beers made with Oslo that do come out clean. So my problem is to start with, I don't like the Horn and Dahl strain, period. Um, I'd much rather use one of the, like the Voss or the Opashog or Oslo. Um, and I also suspect, uh, much like what we were talking about with uh, Levy a few weeks back, uh, people are still learning how to use these things. And right now, there's a lot of, of stuff being driven off of people's wanton enthusiasm. <laughs> that's a that's a very good way to put it. Yeah, and people are trying to push these things to the extremes that they hear about. Oh, you can do this at 100 degrees. You can do this at this, that, and the other. Uh, what I suspect what we're going to find is over time is people are going to pull it back and sort of become... Yeah, more restrained with what it is that they're trying to get out of these things. But no, I I, I agree. I think with the hot ferments like that, you know, particularly with Hornendall, you're going to have to cover up some characters. Uh, again, that's part of the reason why Hornendall is not my favorite of these. So there we go. Yeah, I, I would say that at this point in time, there's not a lot of information out there about these. So if you're going to use one of them, try to find somebody who's used it before and get personal experiences. Oh, there's a lot of information out there. It's just how much of it can you actually put faith in. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's true, man. You just need to uh, find somebody you trust, find a beer you like, and go from there. Yep. All right, and our next question comes from uh, Alan uh, uh, DeBerton, uh, St. Andrews by the Sea in New Brunswick, Canada. It's, so far, it's a two-Canada two question, so. And he says here, I recently brewed an ESB-style beer and encountered a great deal of trube in the hot break. I am a brew-in-a-bag, no-chill brewer, and I use an induction hot plate to make a five-gallon batch. The brew day went great. However, when I racked the brew, I was sad to leave all that tasty beer in the hot break trube. I think I left more than a gallon of wort-slash-trube mix. I was wondering, do you guys keep the trube? Basic brewing in 2012 and brewlosophy in 2019? Uh, Did experiments that mostly indicated that there wasn't much of a perceived difference in keeping the trube. And keeping the trube usually resulted in increased fermentation, but it can also increase increased perceived astringency. It seemed with the basic brewing in 2012 results, hop aroma and overall flavor impacts were difficult to tell. Anyway, it would be good to have another source to weigh in on this topic. I'd rather keep more beer than less. The next time I brew, I plan to transfer more trube from my no-chill bucket into the fermenter. 
My only concern for my brewing process is repitching yeast. I often reuse the yeast for my primary carboy for my next batch of beer. My process for yeast health is to leave a little beer in the carboy when racking to secondary or to keg. I then put the remaining beer and yeast into a growler with an airlock into my fridge for my next batch. Repitching the yeast this way has worked great every time. So, Denny, what do you think? Troub or no troub? Uh, troub is what I've always done, man. I've never had a problem with it. Okay, and what do you say to the people who are like, oh, dirty beer? <laughs> then you haven't tried it. I mean, I, that's, I'm, that's, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You you take a leap of faith and find out about it. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I reused yeast, I was literally sweating when I did it. Uh, now it's just common practice for me to pour all the slurry troop and everything from a batch uh, into uh, two to four different containers keep a little bit of the beer from the batch on top of it and reuse one of those, either pitch directly or make a starter with it. And in spite of the fact you may be worried about flavor carryover, color carryover, I have never seen that happen. So there you go. That's that's my evidence. And, I mean, there's been plenty of stuff that shows that at least a little bit of troop is actually good for fermentation. Uh, you know, it helps give some extra nutrients over to the to the ferment. I'm sort of in the half not worry, half worry category, which is very much in my personality, which means that I am not obsessive about trying to keep every last bit of true about. I've seen some people who do that. Um, at the same time, I don't try and suck every last drop of wort out of my kettle. So, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of in the half and half category. Uh, not that I think it makes any difference. I just it's a combination of efficiency and a little bit of nebulous weariness. Yeah, I, I would say that that's the case uh, for me. As I have always said, I am a lazy brewer. So if I think that something will work and it's less work for me, that's what I do. There we go. Sounds good to me. All right. And so now that's our two questions for the episode. It's time for a quick tip. And I think we've riffed on this one before, but it's so important that we need to riff on it again, which is remember to put stuff back. There was a little while ago, about I think maybe two, three weeks ago at this point, where I was in the brewery and I was frantically trying to work on something. I was trying to find the small little wrenches that I use for my draft system and other things. And normally those go into the toolbox next to the draft rig. You guys have heard me talk about the fact that I keep tools near the places where I need them. Past me did not put those tools back into the toolbox by the draft fridge. So future me, or present me, had to go hunting for them. And present me was very, very upset with past me. I finally had to end up, I had to finally kludge together a solution in order to make it work. But dear past me, F you. <laughs> you know what, man? That's the same way that I managed to forget all the hops in that batch, too, because I put them someplace different than where I usually put them. Yeah, you know, it's it's just kind of amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how easy it is to fool yourself. My hops were sitting right there in plain sight, yet I still forgot them. So, yep. you know, yeah. Uh, familiarity breeds. Indeed. So now, something other than beer. Yeah, man. Uh, this is something that my wife turned me on to, uh, the, the music fan in the family. Uh, she just happened to catch a bit of it one night. It is called the American Epic Sessions. It's on PBS. Check your local PBS station to see if it's available. If you're a Passport member from being a PBS contributor, I know for sure it's available. Basically, what this is, is current musicians recording vintage material 
on rebuilt vintage equipment uh, from the 1920s. I mean, the way that they cut these th- songs on, the those of you who are mechanical freaks will just be in heaven when you see the care that this was restored and, and built with. Uh, the sessions are produced by Jack White and, geez, I'm trying to think who else, uh, 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 T-Bone Burnett, a bunch of people. The people recording are the Alabama Shakes. There's Elton John, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, Jack White, Taj Mahal, and a new guy that has jumped up to the top of my favorites list named Pokey Lafarge. And let me tell you, if you have not heard Pokey Lafarge before, you need to head to YouTube right now and check him out because he is fantastic. Uh, Beck's in it. Los Lobos is in it. The Ava brothers, uh, Betty LeVette, Edie Brickell, Steve Martin, proving that, yeah, he's a great comedian, but it's banjo playing where Steve Martin is really, really the genius. That's true. Yeah. So anyway, check this out. Please do yourself a favor. Between the gear and the music, it is just stunningly good. Uh, That's the American Epic Sessions. It's on PBS. Check it out. Yay. Guess what? What? It's time to go. Ooh, finally, finally. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, but mainly the AHA discussion forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 1253 for those of you who don't spell. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 